think there's 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 a value in having a devil's advocate, literally, uh, in the uh, the FBI, and whose job is to screw up uh, other people's uh, applications in sensitive cases. I think you're the perfect person. <laughs> <laughs> if you try to create an internal advocate of devilry, it just seems like it doesn't scale very well. I'm, I'm at least a little bit skeptical without hearing the details, unless, again, you want to take up that mantle individually, in which case I am all for it, Stuart. <laughs> which would solve at least two or three uh, uh, problems. I, I mean. Episode 294, a special edition of the Cyber Law Podcast focusing on the Inspector General's report about FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, uh, Act, and the many errors in the FBI's handling of FISA and the Trump-Russia investigation. Uh, thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And uh, it's very important to uh, note that the views expressed here do not reflect the opinions of the firm, the institutions uh, to which we belong, our clients, our friends, our former friends, uh, our family, our former family, or our pets, uh, all of whom have strong views on these issues, uh, uh, which probably don't agree with ours. Uh, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and the DHS, uh, and the panel today uh, required that kind of a uh, disclaimer because they are an all-star cast of intelligence and surveillance expert experts. We've got Bob Litt, uh, former general counsel at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and someone who has shaped FISA uh, legislation in the past. Uh, David Chris, who also uh, shaped FISA legislation and who wrote the book on FISA uh, and headed the Justice Department's National Security Division. We could have a three-party uh, uh, interview just with uh, David alone. And finally, uh, Bobby Chesney uh, from the University of Texas Law School, a founder of Lawfare, one of two hosts of the National Security Law Podcast, uh, which I highly recommend. If you are not listening to it, you will not uh, uh, appreciate many of the national security issues that uh, never get on this podcast. Uh, so uh, let's jump into the uh, the report. It's 400 pages. We're aiming to get you a summary, not only of the report, but some thoughts about what actually Congress, uh, the Justice Department, uh, the FBI should do about the many problems that turned up in this report. Let me start with Bobby. Uh, can, uh, there were 17 FISA errors found by the uh, uh, Inspector General. Uh, uh, some of them were kind of, you know, when you go back and read them, you say, well, that anybody could have done that, right? Somebody in Timbuktu picked up some information and it didn't get shared with somebody in Minsk. Uh, those sorts of things happen. But there are a lot of others that are much more serious. Can you give us a kind of overview of what problems uh, uh, the inspector general found? You bet. So we're talking about uh, errors that are specifically involving the FISA Title I application process. And, and basically, this is entirely about the degree to which there was either a lack of candor or key omissions or inaccurate representations or incomplete representations that were coming out of the, the FBI's end of the process. And so one thing to note at the outset is 
um, the the critique is is pretty much entirely aimed at at FBI and not at DOJ National Security Division, which is placed in the same position as the FISA court. That is not realizing that the uh, the factual picture that was being provided to it to support these applications um, had these problems. Well, can I interrupt you just yeah. just there because the, that's a, a problem of the scope of the Inspector General's authority. He's got clear authority to second guess everything the FBI does, but he doesn't have clear authority to second guess everything that lawyers at the Justice Department have uh, done or anything that happens outside of justice and FBI. So this is a report that focuses on the FBI and its errors, maybe unfairly to the exclusion of problems that, that might have occurred elsewhere. Well, and it sounds like when uh, when John Durham, and I know we'll talk about this later, when John Durham eventually weighs in, that we have reason to think he, he may have some additional uh, shots to fire at both in and outside the Justice Department. Uh, so on the on the 17 errors, I think we can group them helpfully into four buckets. And uh, one of the biggest buckets has to do with a series of errors that have to do with the improper inclusion of information that tended to bolster the credibility of Christopher Steele. And of course, this is central because the nature of the Title I application process is you've got an FBI affiant who's swearing uh, to a summary of the information available to the FBI that's relevant. And that means it's going to be hearsay and double hearsay. It's going to be conveying just like any other ex parte warrant application process. You're going to have all this packaging of hearsay and the credibility of the out of court declarant can't be tested directly. So it, it matters greatly in this context, as it does in any context, but especially here. Steele, of course, uh, uh, you, you think his first name is Steele, his last name is Dossier. He's the guy who <laughs> produced the, uh, uh, the, the um, uh, remarkable, uh, and I think in the words of Jim Comey, uh, uh, salacious and unverified uh, dossier. Not all of it was salacious and unverified, uh, um, uh, but it turned out to be a pretty substantial part of the FISA application. And the question is, how credible is it? And it looks as though uh, there was stuff said about Steele that uh, was uh, maybe uh, uh, gilding the lily a little, at least. Right. And in particular, the uh, the effort to suggest to the court that uh, Steele's prior uh, sourcing had been deemed corroborated and then used in a criminal trial when it turns out that if they just checked with the uh, case handler from FBI, that person could have said, no, no, actually, we ended up not using that stuff. So there was a uh, gilding of the lily on his credibility, uh, improper bolstering there. And then on the flip side of it, they omitted some information that may or may not have loomed terribly large, but they didn't disclose it, that would have tended to erode or impeach his credibility. A third bucket is uh, similar. They omitted some information that would have tended to impeach the credibility of one of Steele's own subsources. Because, of course, Steele was himself just packaging the uh, information that others were providing him. Uh, I thought this was striking. You know, one of those subsources, apparently FBI opened a counterintelligence investigation of that guy uh, just days before the initial uh, FISA application against Carter Page, but they didn't disclose that. Uh, and then last, turning away from people's credibility and going to just what you might call the case in chief, that is the evidentiary case to show that Carter Page was an agent of the Russians, which is the whole game. There were omissions and, and misrepresentations of information that was available to the FBI about that. And here, I think the most notable one probably is this two-step error about Page's connections to a, an unnamed other government agency, which at least to me seems obviously to be the CIA. First, 
the a big part of the case against Page was that if nothing else, he had a lot of contacts with shady Russian figures, Russian intelligence officers. It's really material, though definitely not dispositive, that Page apparently did uh, have contact reports with CIA debriefing on some of those. That doesn't show he wasn't an agent of the Russians, but it's material and it, it, it certainly puts his contact in a somewhat better light. So that wasn't disclosed. And then after Page began talking publicly about this, there was further pressure from the uh, the National Security Division attorney who was having to make these representations, wanted a definitive answer. And I think at this point we can say infamously, uh, apparently an FBI general counsel's office attorney uh, who was providing further assurances on this point, not only failed to be you know, fully uh, engaged in candor with the DOJ attorney about this prior contact, but actually inserted the inaccurate phrase, not a source into a key message that then led uh, led to a further failure to disclose this prior relationship. So you could so, you, you could say that that he was forging evidence uh, to support the uh, 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 the FISA application. And he was sending it to the guy who had to swear under penalty of perjury that everything in it was accurate. So it was a um, there was a safeguard, and um, this fellow just uh, corrupted the uh, the practice uh, in the most egregious fashion by adding the evidence that was needed. Uh, uh, let me ask, uh, David, uh, you ran a process. Uh, you uh, you oversaw the office that uh, was enforcing the rules about uh, having to have a fact check backed by actual evidence for everything that's in one of the affidavits. Uh, um, is there any explanation other than uh, this is somebody who shouldn't really be working at the, uh, 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 at the FBI doing this? No, not for that lawyer's conduct in doctoring the email from the other intelligence agency. I mean, there's just no excuse for that. There's no way that that can be squared with very, very basic understandings of what government attorneys are supposed to do, particularly in the FISA court. Um, my own involvement in this is is even worse than you described. Since I was there in 2000 uh, to 2003 and was part of the team that um, you know was responsible really for issuing the Woods procedures back in April 2001 in response to dozens of significant factual discrepancies and errors and omissions and failures in uh, FISA applications during that period of time. So those procedures were adopted in response to these huge problems, all of which, many of which were documented by the FISA court in a 2002 published opinion uh, and gave rise to these new procedures. But, you know, even without those procedures, there's just no way that uh, lawyers for the government are supposed to amend and improve emails from other agencies and push those up the reporting chain and, and knowing they're going to end up in a FISA application under oath in the court. So I, I'm going to uh, ask uh, Bob Litt to weigh in. You over, we, we, uh, sorry, the inspector general never admits that the other agency is the central intelligence agency, but everybody is assuming that. I, uh, so I'll just uh, make that assumption that, uh, because I have no actual classified information in this regard. Uh, you can either call it the CIA or other government agency. Um, it, I guess my question is, is there something about being a source 
which sounds like an FBI term rather than an intelligence community term that might have confused this? Or is it, uh, uh, is it pretty clear that uh, what the intelligence agency said uh, was inconsistent with the, the statement that he was not a source? Well, um, you know, I always uh, operate from the principle that if you have a choice between malevolence and incompetence, um, you're never going to go wrong suspecting incompetence rather than malevolence. Um, I don't know what this uh, FBI lawyer was thinking when he did this, but I do know that there is a difference between uh, the CIA accepting information that somebody is willing to walk in and provide them and the CIA using somebody as an asset. Um, and it may be that that distinction is what confused the aid, the uh, lawyer here. Uh, having said that, um, there's still no excuse for changing an underlying document. So uh, I think we're just going to have to wait and see. Presumably, uh, this matter has been referred for criminal investigation. And at some point, we'll learn more about it. Bob is right in the sense that, you know, there's a difference between accepting information somebody from somebody and uh, using them and vetting them and approving them as a source. But Regardless of that, you can't add your own words to an email from another government agency and make it seem as if your words were theirs. I mean, that's just you can characterize what they said if you want to and make the argument that he's not a source. And that may, in fact, be true. But you don't you don't get to pretend that that's what they said to you. And, and that point is so obvious that it does make me wonder what on right. earth this individual was thinking. So there is some evidence that this uh, that this individual uh, had sent messages that said "Vive la Résistance" about uh, Trump's election. Uh, so there will be people who will say, oh, "This this is evidence that the FBI had it in for the president." Uh, um, what's the best response to that? Well, I'll I'll jump in on that and say first of all, this is one individual. This is not the FBI. Um, number two, this is a pretty tiny corner of a much larger and um, f uh, appropriately predicated and frankly, extremely important counterintelligence investigation that was being run by a lot of people who have no indication of any political bias whatsoever. And, and number three, it, it, it's a little hard to make the connection between this lawyer's personal political views and altering a document to get a FISA against somebody who's no longer a part of the Trump campaign. Um, so I, I don't think the argument that this suggests that the whole investigation was tainted by politics is very persuasive. It's, it, it, it doesn't suggest a conspiracy. Uh, a, and my assumption is that there's there are bureaucratic incentives here. Uh, the FBI had gone down a route saying this, this person was not a source. And then when forced to actually demonstrate with uh, hard evidence that that was not so, it turned out that maybe it was so in some uh, definitions of source. And um, the lawyer panicked because they were otherwise going to have to say to the uh, to their um, uh, supervisory special agent, uh, actually, the stuff you've been sending in doesn't uh, 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 add up to what we have been saying. Uh, and to avoid that and further inquiries coming from NSD, 
um, uh, the simplest thing seemed to be to fake the evidence. Okay, uh, uh, that's bad. That's like really shocking. Uh, um, the steel stuff um, is of a different sort. It's more kind of um, egging the pudding in order to get the, uh, um, uh, to make sure that there was a probable cause. Uh, I, and the FBI had been told when they went for a page FISA warrant without the Steele dossier that they weren't quite there. So they were relying very heavily on the Steele dossier in order to get the warrant. And they wanted Steele to be a, uh, a, a good source and to my mind, at least, they kind of um, left out uh, a clear statement that nothing that Steele, who they praised as a former source, uh, was telling them uh, was actually Steele's own knowledge. He was basically running a bunch of um, subsources uh, inside Russia or elsewhere uh, who were themselves gathering the information. Uh, so they were not only saying Steele's great with less justification than uh, was appropriate, but they're uh, omitting the fact that he's really relying on people whose accuracy came into substantial question. Well, this is Bobby. I want to weigh in on that. I think the biggest problem with the reliance on the the pass-through of the of the, the hearsay from these Russian subsources is that eventually in 2017, uh, FBI does get out into the field and start talking directly directly to these people. And at least in the one instance, one of the, I think, a uh, person characterized as a primary subsource uh, says things are not consistent with what Steele had represented. And then in the renewal application, rather than revealing this highly pertinent fact, um, they describe the fact that they had a, uh, a conversation that left them thinking that this person was a credible source. And they don't disclose the contradiction apparently occurred, which is, I think, a, a horrible, horrible mistake. Yeah, so they updated it, it only with the the good stuff, and they left out all the bad stuff when they updated it, which means that there isn't an argument that says they're kind of bad about updating. They're bad about updating if it undercuts the application, but good about updating if it bolsters the application. That certainly appears to be the case here. I guess I, look, this, I'll ask this question kind of again. Uh, uh, is that a problem across the board with FISA applications, or is there something, some reason to think um, there's something operating in this case with all the high political stakes that drove them in that direction? Uh, um, uh, let me ask David to weigh in on that. You know, that's um, an unanswered question that I think we may have answered when the inspector general does his follow-up audit that he promised in the report that he was going to undertake. Um, I mean, there are elements about this particular investigation, quite apart from the political aspects of it, that might have contributed to sloppiness and might not apply more broadly. Chief among them, that this thing was run out of headquarters and with field agents who were brought in for 90-day temporary duty uh, periods and then rotate it out. Uh, that kind of structure, running it out of headquarters rather than the field office and switching out the line agents every 90 days, um, 
removes a lot of the continuity and uh, structural protection that ensures the integrity. I'm not excusing it, nor am I really criticizing the decision to run it out of headquarters, which was done knowing that it would be operationally challenging, but in order to try to prevent a leak, which would have been very unfair to then candidate Trump. Um, so, you know, I'm not trying to second guess it, but I do think there are reasons that this case may be specially screwed up if that's what the evidence ends up showing uh, that don't pertain to politics at all. On the other hand, if the audit shows a widespread problem, then I would say we probably have cultural slippage uh, that, you know, any complex system tends towards entropy and chaos and sloppiness. Uh, the Bureau is a very proud intelligence security agency. Uh, and uh, every now and then, you know, uh, things need to be renewed and, and a strong leadership uh, will be needed to bring them back on course. We just don't know which of those sort of possibilities is the right one yet because we don't have the input off the other non-crossfire hurricane cases. Can I just weigh in on this a little bit? Because there are aspects of what happened here that reflect FBI behaviors that I think people who work with the FBI over the years will recognize. One is a historic resistance on the part of the FBI to Department of Justice oversight of its investigations. Um, they believe that they are the investigators and the Department of Justice is the prosecutors, and they occasionally have to be dragged kicking and screaming to the table as, as FISA requires, but they still resist close Department of Justice scrutiny of what they do. Um, a second is that once they commence an investigation, and particularly a large, prominent investigation, they get very invested in the in, in the investigation. No FBI agent feels his career is going to be enhanced by closing out a matter that is is highly important and long running, and so that leads them to a, what Julian Sanchez in a, a piece this morning calls confirmation bias, where they try to advance the investigation. And the third is that I think it they are used to when you get warrants in a criminal context as well as a FISA context, you don't necessarily put all the exculpatory material in there. If you get an informant who's a drug dealer and with a criminal record, who comes in and gives you information that you're using as a basis for a warrant, they will generally refer to the reliable information that the informant has previously provided, the, the, the facts that confirm what the informant has told them. They won't say he's got a criminal record as long as your arm, he deals drugs, and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So I, th I think that th it is certainly possible that this is just um, a large example of institutional problems that the FBI has. Okay, I know that's not actually comforting, right? <laughs> it's no, just, it's no, it's, that it's the, not comforting the at all. Problem, the, there's a FISA problem that's deeper than partisan bias uh, and that it needs an institutional overhaul rather than uh, uh, something to make sure that FISA is not misused in partisan contexts, which are hopefully going to be rare. Um, so that's, uh, that is troubling. Let me ask, uh, uh, to bring the partisan part of it to, to bear here, uh, some of the updates that they didn't do uh, and they're criticized for is the failure to, to say, yeah, we think that this was actually paid for by the Clinton campaign. Uh, uh, they, they, they had a, a, a footnote that 
soft pedaled that a little or euphemized it a little. Uh, um, if you ask a lot of questions, you could have figured out what was going on, uh, but it doesn't look like the FISA court did. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, Glenn Simpson, who was hired and who then hired Steele, um, did things to goose this uh, first as an investigation and then later as a news story uh, in ways that were directly valuable to the Clinton campaign. Uh, 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 it, having a dossier with all the scandalous stuff in it is one thing, but uh, uh, you probably can't get people to publish it unless the FBI is taking it seriously. And so getting the FBI to engage on this and to use it uh, was an important partisan advantage. Uh, uh, and that doesn't mean the FBI was willfully partisan, but it may well be that actors in the chain from the Democratic National Committee through Glenn, through the law firm and Glenn Simpson and Chris Steele were working the FBI in order to have a story that could be leaked before uh, election day saying this set of allegations is getting seriously investigated. Why would you vote for this man? So, Stuart, can I just take issue with at least the first two thirds of that of that statement, which is, I mean, first of all, you know, if you look across the range of all FBI sources, whether in intelligence cases or in criminal cases, Chris Steele is certainly not the worst of the bunch, uh, whatever his other problems, including political biases. Um, I mean, you know, in, in the environment of organized crime investigation or intelligence investigation, you know, you get the sources that you get, whether they be jilted lovers, co-conspirators, angry victims, uh, or others with various political, personal, or financial, or business axes to grind. When I was a young prosecutor, we had an, a saying, you know, there are no swans in the sewer, uh, and you're not going to find Mother Teresa and so forth uh, as your typical sources. So you take what you get, and a former intelligence officer from a friendly foreign nation, I believe is how he's described, is uh, even with all of his political biases, you know, is... Uh, probably on the high side of uh, source quality that you get. That doesn't mean you don't have to disclose all of his warts, but as a source, I think Chris Steele is certainly not the worst. Second, I do think the footnote that you mentioned is a perfectly reasonable uh, way to describe the biases. I think the court surely understood what the footnote was saying, uh, and the, the use of generic identifiers instead of particular names does not strike me as significant, nor is there any evidence that it struck the court as significant as this has been known for a long time. And the court, even though it took some action yesterday, has not focused on the adequacy of the footnote, but rather the adequacy of the detailed reporting. So the court, the, the court has, has basically said to the FBI uh, and the Justice Department, uh, explain yourselves uh, and tell me what you're planning to do. Sure, but not about the adequacy of that footnote. That's been known for a while. Their concerns are in the new stuff, I think, that the IG has revealed, which is failure to report separate things about the source and his subsources and so forth. They knew they had subsources. That's revealed in the footnote. 
but they didn't know about the disagreement between the source and the subsource, for example. So let me uh, let me. Try, I'd like to get to two other uh, uh, questions before we start asking what we can do to fix this. Uh, uh, there's a whole bunch of of talk about using confidential sources, wearing wires to talk to uh, uh, several. Uh, people associated with the Trump campaign. Uh, uh, And um, related to that, uh, at least in my mind, uh, is sending an agent who's actually investigating this to a briefing uh, of the Trump campaign that is supposed to be a briefing about the state of the world from a counterintelligence point of view, with uh, the uh, apparent assignment, uh, all, along with being an expert in this area, of watching Michael Flynn uh, uh, to see what he says and writing up a 302 uh, law enforcement report on what he um, uh, learned about uh, uh, Flynn's connection to this. Um, uh, all of which, in the view of um, people on the right, suggests that the FBI was spying in a pretty intrusive way on the Trump campaign. And and let me ask, uh, uh, Bobby, do you have a, a view about how surprising or uh, questionable these procedures were? Well, I was surprised to learn about the appearance of, uh, of somebody who was a crossfire hurricane investigator on a, uh, on a transition briefing team. And my understanding is that Director Ray has already adopted a policy in, in light of this to simply not do that again. The transition briefings cannot be used also for a dual investigative purpose. Uh, the question that leaves open is, okay, well, what if it's instead uh, not a transition briefing, but a defensive briefing where the ostensible occasion for the briefing is to come talk to the president, Flynn and others to tell them that the Russians are targeting them and, hey, here's what we know. And and then nonetheless, filing a 302 on Flynn and others' reactions afterwards, um, the director's statement about what they've got planned in that context wasn't clear to me exactly uh, what they had in mind. I think that's a really tough one because you don't want to insulate people who may in fact be uh, the targets of investigation. Let's say there's a hypothetical campaign and, and one of the senior members of the campaign is in fact, let's just hypothesize, uh, breaking the law or, or acting as uh, on behalf of a foreign government. Um, there does need to be the ability to... to uh, capture information when you interact with them. And it's just a real dilemma that's actually kind of hard to iron out in practice. Yeah, this is David. I'm with you, Stuart, and and with you, Bobby, that I think it was strange. And I think ultimately the wrong call to put an agent who's investigating into the transition briefing. Um, It's similar to why the FBI doesn't do certain undercover techniques, say, impersonating uh, media or something like that. It, It just... I think creates too much strain uh, and too much suspicion and uncertainty in ways that have bad collateral effects. So I'm I'm with you, Stuart. I think that was a bad call. I'm glad Director Ray has said they won't do it. It's a tough thing for agents to figure out whether and when to do a defensive briefing because you know if you think that a U.S. person is being targeted by a hostile foreign intelligence service and they're unwitting of this. Uh, then, of course, you want to warn them so that they can be on guard and not fall victim to the predations of that foreign service. On the other hand, if you think they're in on it, 
then of course you don't want to tip off the fact that you are investigating them and onto them. And you know the over under on that is sometimes hard to calculate. I think the inspector general recommended, and Director Ray I think has also committed to sort of uh, coming up with some guidelines around how to assess that difficult judgment call. Doesn't strike me as strange, however, to document in a 302 the results of a defensive briefing, particularly if it provokes a really strange response. I mean, had they done a defensive briefing for Flynn or Trump or somebody, and then you know the person had said, You're, thanks for letting us know, but we already knew we're actively involved in a conspiracy with them <laughs> to find those missing emails. You can be damn sure that would come back to the investigative team. I have my, my own uh, take on this, which is uh, on the issue of a defensive briefing, uh, I think uh, I agree with, with what I think David was saying, which is that the decision, given what they knew and what they suspected as a result of that knowledge, I think the decision not to give a defensive briefing was an understandable one. I think sending uh, the agent in to uh, as part of the uh, counterintelligence briefing um, I, again, not to not to be Johnny One Note here, but I think that that's the FBI being the FBI. They do pretext interviews all the time, where they there's somebody they suspect of of an espionage, so they'll call him in on the pretext that they have to re up his security clearance to interview him and get information. What I think this reflects is insufficient sensitivity to the peculiarities of this particular matter. And I think a number of the steps that Director Ray has taken are intended to ensure that people take those considerations into account in making investigative decisions in a case like this. Yeah, I think that, that there, there's, a, there's a fine point here that I think also ties to uh, sending in undercover agents wearing wires to talk to members of the campaign. That's a standard uh, uh, investigative technique that uh, even a, a, a preliminary investigation authorizes. And the, um, the IG says, I think this was a properly predicated investigation. And whether it was a properly predicated preliminary or uh, full investigation doesn't matter. They still could have uh, engaged in wearing a wire and a lot of the things that feel very intrusive. They could have engaged in pretext interviews and lying to the targets. But uh, the targets, um, uh, on the one hand, we, we, we can agree that, of course, you have to open an investigation of the Russians. The question is, do you open an investigation that is aimed at four members at the top or close to the top of the campaign? I, I realize it's kind of a shambolic campaign and finding who's at the top is sometimes <laughs> a little hard. But uh, uh, you know, at least two of these people were right at the core of the campaign at various times. Uh, um, and stuff that we're willing to see people do to criminals, we're not so willing to see the FBI do to another party, uh, the opposing party uh, to the one in power, um, without a damn good reason. And, and so there's been this debate about whether this was properly predicated. To the, the IG says, yes, it was. Durham, John Durham says, I don't really agree with that, although he doesn't spell out what he doesn't agree with. And Bill Barr releases a, a statement saying that this was an investigation of a campaign on a flimsy basis. And the basis was, you know, was not very strong when they opened this. All they had was 
a belated report from what was widely reported to be the Australian ambassador saying, I went drinking with this guy several weeks ago, and he said things which now, in light of the leak of uh, uh, the Democratic National Committee uh, emails, looks highly suspicious. Uh, And um, I guess the question is, did they make a mistake in opening an investigation and deciding that they were going to include all four people as basically targets. Stuart, I'm not sure your factual predicate is right there, that that was the only basis for opening the investigation. Well, they have Carter Page. You're right. I suppose they, they, well, they, they have- also, you know, so they have a couple of the things. I mean, they have Carter Page's prior behavior for whatever that's worth. They have Paul Manafort, who's apparently been under investigation for quite some time. And they have, I think, three days before they open Trump going on TV and saying, Russia, can you help us find the 30,000 emails? The sort of hypothetical that I was imagining in the context of a defensive briefing gone wrong. <laughs> so uh, there are other facts on the table. Uh, and you know, given the standard, even to open a full, which is just an articulable factual basis that reasonably indicates a crime or threat to national security, it's, uh, you, know, you may want to tighten up the requirements for SIM cases, that is sensitive investigative matters. But, you know, a potential overreaction to this would be to tighten the requirements for opening a full field investigation across the board, uh, which people don't always understand. You open an investigation in order to see whether you can establish probable cause, uh, not because you already have probable cause. If you make that the standard, you're putting the FBI into that passive kind of reactive mode only. Uh, which could have some very significant consequences in ordinary law enforcement, let alone in intelligence or counterterrorism. So with all due respect to that, I I think the idea that we could see another equally flimsy, and I think it is pretty flimsy, uh, uh, a piece of evidence used to send undercover agents wearing wires into the opposing party's campaign uh, uh, is, it's chilling and inappropriate uh, uh, in a a democracy. I agree it's chilling. I mean, I, I do think it's very, very frightening to think of our security services looking at political campaigns and candidates. It's something we saw, you know, the politicization of intelligence from the period 1947 to 1976. And it is super, super awful and dangerous. Um, the, the key is to, again, avoid what is potentially an equally bad alternative, which is ignoring uh, credible evidence and not investigating. All right. Well, that takes us to, uh, to the question of what we should be doing, right? Uh, I, and uh, I, I'll offer one kind of simple thought. I don't know that there's a that, that we can make it a rule. But I'm absolutely astonished that there was nobody with the possible exception of Stu Evans uh, uh, in uh, of the Justice Department National Security Division who said, if we're going to start an investigation like this, I want to just cross-examine the hell out of everybody who's arguing for the investigation to go forward and make sure that all of our facts are rock solid because it would be outrageous to begin this investigation on bad facts, which is sort of what happened. Uh, I, and I guess the question is, why wasn't there somebody who made that their business? And is Stu Evans the unsung hero of the report? 
Uh, Stu's a former colleague and, and friend, and I think he does come across very positively in this report, as does most of NSD and the Justice Department. I mean, as, as we talked about earlier, this is really focused on FBI non-reporting across the street. Your caveat about Horowitz's investigative authority uh, is right, but doesn't look as if Horowitz harbored any significant doubts about the DOJ folks here because he did look at their notes and interview them and talk to them about the briefings they'd gotten and so forth and so on. And he didn't find problems at NSD. And he found some good stuff uh, from Stu and others that tried to mitigate some of these concerns. I mean, I, I again find myself agreeing with you, Stuart. It's a maybe unfamiliar sensation. I may need to take an aspirin, but uh, you know, there is something just very weird about the sloppiness that crept in here and the errors that crept in here. Uh, if they weren't politically motivated, uh, or even if they were, why was somebody not really insisting on extra special rigor uh, in this instance. And, and I think some of it does go back to cultural stuff and some of the points Bob was making earlier. But of course, we'll have to wait and see what all the evidence shows, with, whether it's widespread or whether it's unique to this matter. And I'm, I'm not sure I would let uh, DOJ off the hook on this. Uh, uh, they, I've seen prosecutors, Bob, you've been one, uh, uh, and I've seen them cross-examine agents in cases where they thought that uh, there was some risk and uh, that, that the agent was over-egging the pudding. And it's a brutal uh, experience <laughs> and well-deserved in many cases. Uh, uh, and so, Bob, do you think that they're, should have been more Justice Department uh, scrutiny? Stuart, I, I think if you asked Jim Baker or Jim Comey or Andy McCabe, did you give this case extra scrutiny, they would all say, yes, we did. And I think that's actually reflected in here that they did. They were extremely sensitive to the nature of the case. They were very careful in what they did. The problem was they had people who were not telling them the truth. And I think the same thing is true of the Department of Justice. Stu Evans asked all the right questions, but there's a limit to what you can do if you ask somebody a question and he gives you an answer and you can, you, you, it, it's kind of hard to go back and say, I don't believe you, tell me again. Um, I, I, you know, um, I, 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 I think it's unfair to tar the people who really had no knowledge of this um, for not um, putting their subordinates on the rack um, to extract information that wasn't coming to them. You know, I agree. Let me, let me ask, Bobby has the self-confidence of never having to actually have to try to run one of these offices. Uh, uh, and so he'll have, he'll have <laughs> answers to what we sh what should have been done. Uh, and can this be solved just by making changes at the FBI uh, DOJ level, or are we going to need legislation? So I, I have the, I have the, uh, I mean, here I am literally in the ivory tower looking out my window, pontificating with the benefit of tenure and no responsibility. So here, here are the answers. Uh, I think that uh, we should be thinking about the Woods procedures, uh, which David mentioned earlier, and we should be thinking about the extent to which um, their emphasis, uh, which had to do with the circumstances that gave rise to them, on, on making sure that certain checks are made, that certain verifications are made, uh, but perhaps don't emphasize as much as this instance illustrates we should, uh, the, the necessity of being more forthcoming with uh, the contrary evidence or the contrary information on credibility of the declarants 
and on the case in chief, that those sorts of elements, we can imagine a situation where either by uh, FBI's own actions or perhaps even through statutory intervention, though Lord knows what that might end up looking like, um, some sort of uh, expansion and further tightening and and uh, some kind of post hoc occasional auditing of the verification process that would actually be tailored to address the particular problems that arose here. It wouldn't perfectly solve them because you can't perfectly solve problems in a complex human system. But that seems like if, if you're trying to respond to the problems indicated here, that seems responsive. Now, normally I would say that there's there's little chance you're going to see actual legislation, but there's there's two factors that make me think it's not impossible here, whether it's desirable or different. Uh, first, Trump himself might be unusually disposed towards supporting something that by signing something into law kind of revives the story of how things went wrong in the investigation of his campaign. You might like that. Secondly, uh, we have a bit of a forcing function in that we have other unrelated FISA provisions that have got to be dealt with on March 15th, the uh, the roving wiretaps, lone wolf and 215 renewals that got kicked over from December. Now, that shouldn't require touching Title I, but uh, the name FISA will be in the air, and I can easily imagine that there ends up being some momentum to do something that touches FISA Title I in the course of renewing those authorities. All right. So let me uh, ask Bob. Let, well, actually, no, I'll ask David, because uh, um, the Woods procedures were in substantial part your baby, or at least you had had to, to make them function. I, do you really think that there are ways to change them that would um, alleviate the problems that we've seen here? Um, well, so first of all, credit for the Woods procedures, and I do think it is credit goes to their principal author, Michael Woods. Who was, uh, well, yes, who's still author. practicing law. It, 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 usually mm-hmm. these things are named after people who are on their deathbed, but uh, he's, uh, nope. he's, he's in the middle of his career. <laughs> Young Michael was uh, was their principal author, and he really does deserve a lot of credit for um, that. I, I mean, I didn't see in the inspector general's report a lot of suggestion for massive improvement of the Woods procedures. I think it's more... The lesson to be drawn is, you know, no procedures can be any better than than the agency's adherence to them. And they clearly were not followed here. For example, they didn't vet the description of steel with steel's handling agent. Uh, and that's just not in keeping with those procedures. If there is going to be sort of internal change that's in the same ballpark, I can imagine the Bureau uh, raising the standard for disclosure of um derogatory on sources and really imposing a higher standard than maybe has been the case. Um, And you can imagine just increasing what has to be disclosed. That's not so much for the Woods procedures verification of accuracy of what is disclosed, um, but it's in the same sort of ballpark. Broadly speaking, you know, I, I sort of agree with Bobby's assessment. It, you, you rarely go wrong betting on congressional inaction, uh, especially these days. Uh, but there are some reasons to think that maybe action is possible here and probably fall into sort of a two by two matrix. You could make some changes to FISA at the back end, uh, enhancing the rights of those who are prosecuted based on FISA information. That's an oldie but a goodie. The ACLU has already recommended it. Uh, or you could make some changes at the front end. Uh, including maybe expanding the reporting on adherence to the Woods procedures in the FISA applications. Uh, and you can do that across the board in all cases, or you could do it only in these sensitive investigative matters reasonably defined. Do you think there's 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 a 
value in having a devil's advocate, literally, uh, in the uh, 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 papal sense of the word, somebody who uh, works at the FBI and whose job is to screw up uh, other people's uh, um, uh, applications in sensitive cases. Uh, they'd be deeply unpopular. You'd probably have to put them in witness protection. I think you're you're the perfect person. <laughs> I mean, I'm the I'm one of the designated devil's advocates in the FISA court now, the Amicus program, you might you might call us. Uh, and I mean, I do think there's value there in a limited number of cases. But an Amicus at the court's not going to help with this kind of a case because you don't know what you don't know. Inside the agency, you you know, you'd like to think that it's baked into the culture that sort of rather than creating an individual or group of designated contrarians that that sort of instead you i think probably have more success in a wider range of cases baking in some decent self-regard and self-cross-examination into the system among the everybody if you try to create an internal advocate of of devilry it just it seems like it doesn't scale very well i'm i'm at least a little bit skeptical without hearing the details unless Again, you want to take up that mantle individually, in which case I am all for it, Stuart. <laughs> which would solve at least two or three uh, uh, problems. I'd, I'd, be, I'd have all a clearance that would prevent me from doing the podcast. Uh, I, uh, I'd uh, be gainfully uh, employed loss. and uh, uh, I wouldn't live very long. <laughs> Stuart, I think, I think there's a real danger with the March 15th deadline and the kind of superheated politics of this issue that uh, that Congress is going to screw FISA up. Um, I think there are lots of things that are being proposed um, that would really damage the process, such as a requirement that there be an adversarial proceeding for every Title I FISA directed at a U.S. person that somebody has proposed. Um, I, I do think, I think David's mention of uh, uh, greater rights for criminal defendants against whom FISAs uh, are used. I think that's a reasonable uh, proposal that would have a deterrent effect because you don't necessarily know in advance which ones are going to end up in a criminal case. I think the idea that I think maybe Bobby mentioned of providing for some kind of audit of FISA applications, perhaps by the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, uh, is a useful one. But I think it's going to be very important to keep a watch on any legislative proposals to make sure that they don't really uh, interfere with one of the uh, cornerstones of our national security uh, apparatus. So let me ask you, though, half the country has now pretty good evidence, and you may disagree with it, but pretty good evidence that uh, uh, intelligence capabilities, uh, FISA, uh, were used um, without, at the end of the day, basis uh, uh, to start a um, an investigation that, you know, kind of uh, consumed uh, uh, two or three years of the Trump administration with plenty of help from President Trump. Um, and they'd say, yeah, and you want us just to say, yeah, that's fine. Okay. We understand how that works. Uh, but uh, whoever gets the Democratic National Committee better not have any friends in foreign governments because now we know how the game is played. Do you really think that we should just say, no, there's nothing uh, that, that needs to be changed here statutorily? You know, I think that that overstates it a bit because certainly Carter Page has cause to complain, but the broad 
counterintelligence investigation as to Russia, certainly I don't think looks worse overall here. And as to Flynn, Papadopoulos, and Manafort, I, I'm not sure that they have cause to complain really based on what comes out in this report either. So it might be that this is a painting with too broad a brush. I, I also think, Stuart, and I'm going out on a bit of a limb here, it is important to remember what Mueller did and did not find with respect to contacts between the Trump campaign and Russia. He did not find that there was no coordination. And in fact, he made a point of saying that in a number of respects, they lacked information, either because people didn't testify or because documents were destroyed. And there were an astounding number of contacts between the Trump campaign and Russia that have still not been fully explained. And so I think that to suggest that this was all a a fruitless witch hunt is overstating the case significantly. All right. Well, I, I, I'm afraid you remind me of uh, those Japanese uh, uh, soldiers who uh, <laughs> surrendered in Guam, uh, on Guam uh, in 1954. But uh, uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> nonetheless, we do have to uh, uh, to struggle with the fact that a lot of people think that this process is broken and are going to want to fix it. You would like them not to fix it in a way that makes it worse. What is it that we could be offering to people who, in good faith, think uh, um, the, all the errors ran one way and it was remarkably convenient for the administration in power at the time, and we should make sure that doesn't happen again? And that, of course, ignores the entire email investigation. Yes, it does. I, I, and um, I, I, I recognize that there's a problem here that the FBI has um, partly of its own making and partly of the, the divisions that our society has, that they are getting stuck in the middle of a lot of fights that legitimately they should be in, but uh, where they're going to be second guessed to a fairly well at the end. But so, okay, that's the world we live in. What do we do about it? No, but Stuart, I mean, but yes, look, I think even if you, if you take the sort of narrowest interpretation of this, which very well may be justified, that is that it's just this case and the other audit that the IG is doing, let's assume that comes back pretty clean. Uh, and, you know, of course, there are going to be a few little things, but there's no major errors found in the wide range of cases that he is looking at now. And you don't believe at the end of the day that this was politicized. Uh, but still, even on that interpretation conclusion here, there's a lot that can, should and will be done here. Uh, chiefly, they are going to start, you know, uh, really, I hope at least, culturally reinforcing the idea that there has to be scrupulous accuracy in these uh, FISA applications and strict adherence to the Woods procedures, even if it's a huge pain, is the only viable way to go. Uh, they're going to do some training. They're going to tighten up their sensitive investigative matter procedures. Uh, they're going to require better coordination between the Bureau and Maine Justice across the street. They're probably going to require heightened disclosure to the FISA court. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in Ray's letter and, and in, in Horowitz's recommendations that can be done that are non-trivial. They may not be the whole answer, but even on the narrowest interpretation of this, they certainly are something. Uh, let me just add real quick that the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court through Judge Collier has now intervened and added its voice to say that, uh, that that's all right, this all needs to happen, and we want to report by this date, which isn't that far in the future. It could be that the FISC, insofar as it kind of publicly and visibly looks at what Director Ray is doing and ultimately more or less blesses it, helps to heal some of these wounds. 
All right, so I, I promised a lightning round where we could all settle scores. Uh, uh, so I, I'll ask each of you to say, uh, is there somebody who, since the release of the Horowitz paper, uh, someone in political life or a pontificator looks better or worse as a result of this uh, report and why? Uh, so quickly, uh, Bobby Chesney. I feel like all of us who... Uh, you might call us the lawfare crowd who uh, who are often d denounced or criticized, at least back in the older days, as uh, being too quick to credit and, and to trust um, the, the good faith and completeness of the efforts of the FBI in this kind of context. A lot of us look bad right now, and we're sort of watching anxiously uh, to see how the broader OIG investigation uh, sheds light on whether this was a, a one-off problem or a broader problem. But there's no question that a lot of our our positions uh, don't look as persuasive as a result of how this has turned out. Yeah, uh, that's of course the old lawfare regime, uh, lawfare having, <laughs> having having moved to be impeachment central. Uh, uh, and we didn't uh, move. The world has moved around us. <laughs> I think the person who looks best coming out of this is Stuart Baker and his newfound alliance with the ACLU. <laughs> I hope will be very prosperous. And when he takes on the role of devil's advocate at the federal BI, <laughs> I am sure things are going to improve across the board. So I look forward to that. Gag me with a spoon. Bob <laughs> So, so it's hard to find anybody whose reputation has been enhanced by this other than possibly Stuart Evans. Um, I would say that, that, and this is probably obvious, that the, the FBI has taken a huge hit here. Um, this is an, an institution that prides itself on being the premier law enforcement and counterintelligence agency in the world, and they come out looking like a bunch of Keystone cops at best. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, uh, I'm going to make a controversial suggestion since I'm last, and you don't get to. Uh, uh, no, 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 we, we, no, Stuart. No, you have to. You have to allow a right of rebuttal, Stuart. <laughs> okay, I'll, I, 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 Bob, I'll let you rebut because I think you're most likely. I think Devin Nunes uh, looks oh, a lot. Stuart. So I sorry. Many oh, of the things goodness. that he said about the uh, <laughs> um, uh, the page affidavits uh, uh, turned out to be criticisms that were echoed by Horowitz. Uh, uh, and yes, it was a it was a a one sided statement about uh, what was wrong with it. Uh, uh, but that's the world we live in. Uh, and the notion that he was lying about this, uh, I just don't buy. Uh, and I don't think it holds up after Horowitz. So Bob, uh, you get the last word. At the same time, his principal argument, which is that this was a politically motivated, unsubstantiated witch hunt, is completely demolished by Horowitz's report. As a vocal critic of Nunes, I will say, you know, there are some things in his report that are borne out in some general way by what Horowitz found. No question about that whatsoever. And I think that's important. But his central claim w ignored and essentially tried to conceal that full page footnote, uh, which... I think really was dishonest, and that hasn't changed. All right. Uh, thanks to uh, Bob Litt, to Bobby Chesney, to David Chris. This has been episode 294 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please send questions and uh, comments to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. You can follow me on Twitter, and if I get around to it, I will post things that I think we're going to talk about. Uh, uh, please give us a rating uh, and a review. We really enjoy getting the reviews, and I'm always pleased to, uh, to read them out. Uh, and uh, join us after Christmas as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.